You're listening to the micro version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. You guys know that I don't watch everything I should, and I don't watch everything I talk about. I talked endlessly about Fifty Shades of Grey, the movie, when it came out. And I kept promising you I would see it and then follow up with some commentary after seeing it. And I never saw it. I can never bring myself to watch it. Likewise, I never watched the two girls one cup video a million years ago. I read about it. I talked about it. I wrote about it. But I didn't feel like I had to watch it because I knew what was in there. Right? I'd read about it. I, I, I knew it. I didn't have to then sit down and watch it. And I've taken the same tack with the Planned Parenthood secretly recorded, manipulatively edited videos that have suddenly put Planned Parenthood back in the crosshairs of anti-choice Republicans who have been fighting for decades to defund Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood's budget, about 40% of it, comes from federal funding. And let's remember what Planned Parenthood does. Well, I should probably tell you what these videos are quickly if you are not familiar with the shitstorm that they've kicked off. Planned Parenthood makes available to researchers fetal tissue from abortions with the consent of the patient. The person, the woman going in for the abortion can opt to donate the fetal tissue to science and to research. This did not used to be controversial, this donating of fetal tissue. Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, who is right now out there screaming and yelling about how he's going to defund Planned Parenthood, voted for the bill that legalized donating tissues from aborted fetuses to science for research. This was something that had broad bipartisan support 20, 30 years ago. The attitude being that even if you opposed abortion, that some good may come from abortions if these tissues are used in scientific research. And there have been breakthroughs around certain eye diseases, uh, MS, and other important ongoing research because of the stem cells that are available or that can be made available from these tissues when they are donated by the patient at the patient's request in much the same way that a family member can donate, can make the decision to donate the organs and tissues of a loved one who's dying or dead or clinically dead. What the videos recorded, these secret recordings, are Planned Parenthood officials, Planned Parenthood doctors meeting with people posing as companies that buy fetal tissues for research. And the scammers, the people who are posing as these, these uh, as representatives from these companies, try to goad the Planned Parenthood employees into regarding the fetal tissue as a, as a profit generator. And you see – in the videos, and I've read all about them beat by beat, you see the Planned Parenthood officials deflect all offers of money and even joke about the fact that they are not profiting from these sales, that the money that Planned Parenthood gets is for handling and processing and shipping, and that is it. They do not profit from the sale of tissues from aborted fetuses. This has kicked off a national firestorm, these manipulatively edited videos, and has brought us back to a place we've been before, which is another attempt, yet another attempt, to defund Planned Parenthood, to hurt American women, period, the end, to hurt American women. Abortions. Defunding Planned Parenthood is not defunding abortions. 
abortions are 3% of what Planned Parenthood does. 35% of what they do, contraception. 35% sexually transmitted disease, infection, testing, and treatment. Cancer screenings and prevention, 16%. Other women's health services, 10%. And abortions, 3%. So taking federal funding, defunding Planned Parenthood, yanking the 40% of Planned Parenthood's budget that comes from federal grants, that would be the same federal government that last year awarded $76 million in grants to research on fetal tissues just in 2014. That same federal government, if it yanks its money from Planned Parenthood at the same time that it's funding fetal tissue-based research, if they yank their funding from Planned Parenthood for providing the fetal tissues that are used in the research the federal government funds, it's not ending abortion. It's not defunding abortion. It's defunding contraception, cancer screening, sexually transmitted disease prevention and testing and treatment. It's defunding other women's health services. Mostly. 97% of the defunding is going to be all of these other services that save the lives of countless American women every year. So in these secretly recorded videos, you saw people, you saw Planned Parenthood officials, Planned Parenthood doctors, speaking with other people that they thought they had been told were in the same field, medical field, handling fetal tissue. And they were speaking bluntly. They were talking shop the way cops talk to cops and politicians talk to politicians and newspaper people talk to newspaper people tends to be blunter, bluer than when you talk to people who are not in your profession, not in your field. Amanda Marcotte wrote about this uh, aspect of the videos for Slate. And Amanda Marcotte has been providing terrific coverage of the ongoing Planned Parenthood scandal, including the vote this week to defund Planned Parenthood that the Senate just took. The Senate led by Mitch McConnell, who – a couple of decades ago, voted for fetal tissue research, voted for this two decades ago. Now Mitch McConnell is leading the charge to defund Planned Parenthood based on the reality of fetal tissue research. Anyway, Amanda McCart wrote about this aspect of it, the talking shop aspect of it for Slate. As someone who is squeamish, it was extremely difficult for me to listen to these doctors talk about extracting liver, heart, and other parts to be donated to medical research. I nearly fainted when a friend showed me the video of her knee operation once. But people who work in medicine for a living do, in fact, become inured to the gore in a way that can seem strange to those of us who aren't regularly exposed to it. The doctors in Planned Parenthood also thought they were speaking to people in the profession who would be similarly accustomed to this sort of thing. Abortion is gross, no doubt about it, Marcotte goes on. It becomes grosser the later in pregnancy it gets. But so is heart surgery. So is childbirth, for that matter. We don't deny people who need help in those cases because the help is gross, nor should we deny people that help when it comes to needing abortion. We also shouldn't deny women who want to donate fetal or embryonic remains to science any more than we would deny someone who wants to be an organ donor, even though the latter is also quite gross to ponder. These videos and the impact they've had and the stories written about them have forced us to ponder the gory, messy reality of abortion. And once again, it's feeding into this narrative of Planned Parenthood doctors and uh, abortion providers as some sort of – as monsters. The headline, the attack is that they are profiting from abortion when you actually read the transcripts of the videos or you watch the videos if that's what you'd prefer to do. And it's quite clear throughout that they are not profiting from the sales of these tissues and they are knocking down offers to profit from the sales of these tissues from these anti-choice activists posing as – fetal tissue company buyers, right? 
And all of this is feeding into this bullshit attempt, again, to defend Planned Parenthood. Again, because the Republican agenda, as we saw when the Republicans seized control of state legislatures all across the country in 2010, the Republican agenda has been to attack abortion, trap legislation, ultrasounds, vaginal wands. Rick Perry successfully closed three quarters of the abortion clinics in Texas. But it's not just abortion that drives them crazy, as we have seen on the concurrent attacks on access to birth control and contraceptives. That ultimately this is about the Republican, the opposition, right-wing conservative nuts to women controlling their own reproductive lives, their own lives, period, their own reproductive lives, their own health. Because they know when they defund Planned Parenthood, they aren't preventing abortion, they're not defunding abortion. They know, and the target is also to defund contraception, to defund treatment for sexually transmitted infections. Remember, these are the same assholes, these right-wing anti-choice assholes, the same people who opposed the introduction of a vaccine for HPV. And the reason they opposed that, the introduction of that vaccine was because they liked the fact that women were dying of cervical cancer from HPV infections earlier in life. They used those deaths from cervical cancer related to HPV to argue for abstinence education and against sex. And defunding Planned Parenthood because of these videos means defunding contraception. It means defunding vaccinations for HPV for women, which they opposed all along. Cancer screening and prevention, that's vaccines for HPV. They're going after that too. They didn't want those coming online in the first place, and this is going to allow them to take it out. We have to stand with Planned Parenthood now. When it's a little difficult, when it's a little awkward, when they're under fire, we need to stand with Planned Parenthood. I stand with Planned Parenthood, and you should too. I'm going to make a donation to Planned Parenthood today, and I'm going to ask you to make a donation to Planned Parenthood today. Go to PlannedParenthood.org and click on Donate. And this, I've said this before. If you've been listening to the show long enough uh, to hear me come to Planned Parenthood's defense in the past, you've heard me say this. You don't have to donate $500. You don't have to donate $1,000. You don't have to donate $25. If all you can spare is 5 bucks or 10 bucks or 20 bucks, go donate it. Go make that donation because Planned Parenthood can not only point to the amount of money it raises from the public as evidence of its support, its broad support, but the number of donors is another figure that really matters, another data point that really matters in defending Planned Parenthood and Planned Parenthood in defending itself and supporters of Planned Parenthood defending Planned Parenthood. Both those numbers have equal weight, equal value, the amount raised from the public and the number of donors, private donors out there in the public who support Planned Parenthood. So even if you can't inflate the numbers of dollars that they've raised, you can inflate the number of donors that they have, the number of supporters that they have who are motivated enough to donate. So even if you can only spare five bucks, make that donation. Stand with Planned Parenthood now. Now is when it really matters most. Terry and I are going to make a donation today to Planned Parenthood, and we'd like you to join us. PlannedParenthood.org. Click donate. All right. Coming up today on the Savage Lovecast, tons of your questions. And on the subscription magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, which you can find at SavageLovecast.com, V2, Dr. V2, a regular guest, is joining us to speak about some alarming butt stuff that even I, after 30 years, 
of being alarmed by butt stuff was unfamiliar with on today's show. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash savage. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code SAVAGE at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. This episode of The Lovecast is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and your own printer. For a special offer, which includes a digital scale and up to 55 bucks worth of free postage, go to Stamps.com and enter SAVAGE. Dan, my uh, long-term partner about eight months ago when I was giving him head, asked me to bite down on his pot really hard. I did. It was really fun. He got really turned on. I got really turned on. Um, so it's been something that we've been doing um, for the past eight months. And I wondered if, uh, if this is going to hurt him. Um, I bite down on the shaft. Um, I don't draw blood, but I put a lot of pressure. And uh, I, just, I just don't want to hurt him. It's a lot of fun for both of us. And uh, so what are your thoughts? Here's a funny story. My uncle uh, was in a really, really popular, famous regional rock band in the 70s. They were really big on the West Coast, big enough that they had all sorts of groupies. I haven't talked to my uncle recently, so I'm not going to disclose his name or the name of the band, but I bet he hears this podcast and then he's going to ask me to disclose both in a future show. So hang in there and you'll find out the name of the band. But anyway, he uh, – in the 70s, he was a rock star and he met lots of groupies and groupies would throw themselves at him. And he liked to have his dick sucked. Weird, a rock star who likes to have his dick sucked. But my uncle liked to have his dick sucked in a very particular way. He liked to have his dick bitten. He liked to have his balls slapped. And that worked for him. And I don't know why when I was 15 years old and he was living in uh, my house with my family in Chicago, he told me about this. But he did. I think he sensed that I was a budding homo and he was reaching out. We were trying to bond over blowjobs somehow at three or four o'clock in the morning when I would sneak it back into the house from the gay bars and my uncle would be up in the kitchen eating. But the funny part of the story is that if he discovered that the groupie blowing him was a brand new groupie, uh, somebody perhaps who had never given a blowjob before in her life, uh, he would tell her as he instructed her to bite his dick and slap his balls that all men liked that. This is how all men liked head and that she should just do this in the future. And guys will think she's great at this sucking dick thing. And my uncle would do this knowing that with groupies and the way that whole scene worked in the seventies in California, the very next people she blew were likely to be his bandmates. It was a different era. It was a different time. Uh, the moral of the story here though, for you caller is my uncle didn't conclude these stories with, and now my dick is broken and does not work. So I'm going to infer from my uncle's own personal experience with this blowjob preference that your, or this style of blowjob preference that your partner shares, this biting, that it is not going to permanently damage his dick. The erectile chambers, the corpora cavernosa, uh, they can be damaged. And usually when you read about somebody damaging their dick or breaking their dick, it's about a bend. It's about the dick being – somebody's jumping up and down on your dick, slamming their ass or pussy up and down on your dick and the angle gets off and the dick is bent in half and you can pop or damage 
or rupture, the corpora cavernosum, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, the erectile chambers. And that kind of trauma seems to play a, a role or can contribute to the development of something called Peyronie's disease, which is the buildup of plaque, um, really kind of tense fibrous tissue in the penis that can make erections bent or painful or bent and painful. So don't bend his dick in half. Keep the bites relatively gentle. And I think you'll be okay. It's an anecdote, not a data point, but I think your husband's going to be okay. That's my hunch. Hi, Dan. I am a 22-year-old, formerly straight, now questioning my sexuality woman. I guess the reason I'm calling is because I recently had my first encounter with a woman. Going forward, I just, I think that that's something I want to pursue. I I haven't thought about it before now, what I really wanted. I've never been really happy in a heterosexual relationship. And now I'm thinking I want to pursue me becoming and embracing my homosexuality. So I guess I was just wondering, do you have any advice for a woman or man, I guess, going forward? Um, wanting to pursue homosexuality. Do you have any game plans? How do I meet women? How do I know if someone's gay? This is all very new for me. Any information you could give about starting off with a homosexual relationship would be very helpful. Joining him in the studio to help field this question, because I don't think that I have all of the answers for you, is Aaron. Aaron is a lesbian that I know through work. And uh, thank you for allowing me to con you into coming on the show. Thank you. So she's interested in pursuing her first homosexual relationships. Homosexual. The first thing you have to know about homosexual relationships is that you don't have to call them homosexual relationships. You can call them relationships. Indeed. Yeah. I am actually really excited for you. Good for you. I think – it's normal to be totally nervous about this kind of thing. And to mispronounce homosexuality over and over and over again. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I think, you know, treat it just like you would as you have been. Just go with your gut. But let's answer her specific questions. Okay. Uh, how do you meet women who uh, are interested in your homosexuality? Are you in a big city? Leave the house. Leave the house, Yeah. Go online. Go out to bars. Go out to gay parties. And go now out to with queer phone, parties. Now with phones, you can do both at once. You can leave the house with your phone and go online in a bar. Best of both worlds. Best of all the worlds. And how do you know if a woman is a lesbian or a gay or a homosexual? You know, you gotta you gotta go into that with confidence. You gotta go into that if you see someone that's catching your eye, like. Go up to her, talk to her, say hi, smile, flirt, just like you would with a guy. If she flirts back, then you know. If she doesn't seem to be flirting back, then she's probably not into you. So this is advice for women who are interested in women, but this isn't advice that you would give a straight guy. Just anywhere you see a pretty girl that you think you might be interested in, just go flirt? See, this is female privilege here. Oh, is it? (laughs) I don't know. Is that how this works? (laughs) Or or is this framed on, you know, get into a queer space, go to a queer show, join some queer clubs, get into the queer neighborhood, and if you see somebody who looks like a lady you might be interested in? Yeah, don't be shy. Who has several dozen tattoos, that's usually a sign. (laughs) Tattoos, um, belts that are clipped on the hip, Mm -hmm. uh, cargo shorts, tight ponytails. I don't know. I'm just kidding. You're just describing Um. yourself. You're just inviting her (laughs) to come to Seattle, find you, and flirt with you. I am happily 
happily involved. Do you um, remember when you were her? Your first same-sex relationships, thinking, all right, yeah, this homosexuality my, is for me. My my first relationship was in college with my RA. Um, that was it was fun. Basically, our first time hanging out, we held hands watching the Heath Ledger movie, uh, First Night, Night's Tale. Oh, wow. It was really bad, That's but we held hands and I was going nuts, so it was crazy. Um, Did you imprint on Heath Ledger then? Yeah, R.I.P., man. <laughs> right, R.I.P. It's too bad. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if I have any... Any particular advice that's other than just just go with your gut and be respectful and and get out there and it's it's actually not yeah. that, it's not that fucking complicated like and it's not that different the relationships I mean there's some sort of gender differences because of male privilege and and certain things about being guys that can like play out in same sex male relationships there's certain stuff about girls that you see playing out in same sex lady relationships. That you have to control for. Like guys I think you have to control for intimacy issues and fear of commitment. And it's not to say all guys have those problems. And, and like women sometimes, lesbian relationships, have to control for too much intimacy too soon. Lesbian bed death. Do you think that's actually a thing? I don't believe in lesbian bed death. I think that's – Because you're still killing it. Foolishness. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think it's a thing. Um, You know – I've actually I've been so I've been reading this book I've been reading the Emily Nagoski book the Come as You Are mm-hmm. um and that's actually been really interesting because she's talking about how it's not necessarily a drive like sex isn't really a drive it's more in the context and how you how you place yourself within it and I think that's more true for women as part of the argument she's making in that book. Is that not Yeah, true? she talks about it in terms of – which doesn't really bode well for her comparison to it being a drive. But she talks about it in uh, terms of accelerators and brakes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, cis men for the most part have pretty sensitive accelerators while cis women for the most part tend to have more sensitive brakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, there are people who argue that that's biology. There's also people who argue that's culture. And is influenced by – A little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Influenced by millennia of sexual violence and women have to be a little bit more careful, cautious and thoughtful because intimate partner violence, rape, uh, also being impregnated, all those things fall disproportionately on the shoulders of women. So women are going to be less likely to leap for fear of these potential negative consequences than men who don't have to fear them as much and so aren't really approaching sex often with new partners from a defensive crouch. They can go into them with a certain sort of confidence and expectation that I'm not going to be assaulted. Right. I mean – Well, we've gone into a dark place from this woman's <laughs> question. How did, we, how did we get here? <laughs> Back to uh, going out. So there are lots of people I hear from, young lesbians, young gay guys, uh, young bi people who just don't know – who who think that it's hard to go out there and find a partner. It's hard to find the queers, that the queers are the needles in the hetero haystack. How do you find them? And it's – I don't think – you know, maybe I had that fear too years ago. I can't remember. But it really isn't that hard to find the queers. Yeah, I don't think it's it's any harder to find – I would say it's probably easier to find the right woman than it would be to find the right men. That seems more like a needle in the haystack to I me. think you have a bias there as a lesbian <laughs> who's not looking for men. Uh, you may – be right there. Miss Andre, Miss <laughs> this is not a safe space for me anymore. My own I'm podcast a proud studio. Miss Andrus. Are you? No. Do you have one of those male, of. male tears coffee cups? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I want one of those too. Yeah, you should get one. I like to see boys cry as much as the next crazy <laughs> faggot. So leave the house, 
flirt with people you think are hot. It's not that complicated. One thing I want to walk back for her though, like she says that one of the reasons she thinks she may be a homosexual is because she has been unhappy in her heterosexual relationships. And it's possible, caller, that you are bisexual. And don't look at your failed heterosexual relationships as evidence that you are not going to be a successful heterosexual or a successful bisexual because I promise you, as you move into lesbian land or homosexual relationships, you will have failed homosexual relationships too. You will get hurt in homosexual relationships too. Yeah, and that's just sort of a negative spot to come at it from. Like you're coming at it from – you're I've been like, hurt by men, so I'm rushing into the arms yeah. of women with this expectation that I will never be hurt in the arms of women. And Aaron is here to tell you. You might. Might. <laughs> you might. You might. You, you probably will. will. Yeah. You will. That's true. That's true. But I'm I'm just trying to say, like, don't don't do something because something else made you feel bad. Right. Do something because you want to do something to make you Yeah, homosexuality is not a consolation prize for unsuccessful or unhappy heterosexuals or bisexuals. No, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. There was just a thing on Queer Tea this week, the the queer blog, uh, that I enjoy reading very much, particularly when they're kicking holes in me, um, saying, you know, with these posts from people on some anonymous posting site about how unhappy they are, they wish they weren't gay because they've gotten hurt in gay relationships. And the apparently the assumption is if they were in straight relationships, they would never get hurt. It's only gay relationships that you can get hurt in. And then it's faulty, as faulty coming from that angle as it is coming from the caller's angle, which is I've been hurt in straight relationships. I'm going to go have gay ones now as if you're not going to get hurt in gay ones and gay people who think, Oh, gay people are horrible to me. I wish it was straight. Then life would be so easy and wonderful and I would never get hurt. No bullshit. Everybody gets hurt. Grass is always greener. Ass is always greener. (laughs) In my studio, the GR is silent. All right. Fair enough. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on and helping us answer this question. Thanks, Dan. You know that feeling you get when you can get things done with just the click of your mouse? It can't get more convenient than that. And now you can get your mailing and shipping done without leaving your desk thanks to Stamps.com. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office that never closes. And how convenient is that? Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and your own printer. Then just hand your mail to the mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox and you'll never have to go to the post office again. Right now, use my last name, Savage, for this special offer, a no-risk trial plus $110 bonus offer. This includes a digital scale that calculates exact postage for letters and packages and up to 55 bucks worth of free postage. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Savage. That's stamps.com, click mic, enter Savage. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight 29-year-old in an open marriage and I have a few partners and everything's going really well on that front. I'm happy and satisfied with my marriage and feel generally very fulfilled. My question actually concerns my professional life. I'm in a graduate program and a few of my close friends know I'm open, but overall I'm trying to keep it fairly secret because I don't know how it will affect my professional future as an academic. I've recently had a major problem with a male friend with whom I used to be very close for reasons that he refused to explain to me. After I came out to him as Polly, he slowly blocked me out of his friend group, at one point telling me he thought my husband and I needed a divorce, and then a few months later suddenly blocking me from Facebook and not explaining why again. I think his discomfort with this situation says more about him than about me since he's single and I think lonely and probably very jealous um, because I know open marriages are seen as having your cake and eating it too. 
But at any rate, it has been very painful to lose such a close friend, and it makes things very awkward at school since he's in a powerful position amongst graduate students and controls much of the funding. I'm supposed to have a working relationship with him, and at the same time as he blocks my Facebook and doesn't respond to my texts, he'll email me about professional things as though nothing is wrong. I don't want to make a big hoopla in the community because he's generally loved by everyone else, and I would risk disclosing my private life with my husband to everyone, I'm also not con- but I'm also not convinced that he isn't sharing my private life with everyone. So I guess my question is this. Do I just keep pretending nothing is wrong and deal with this guy as a professional colleague, or should I try to confront him? Should I call him out in a more public setting or launch some sort of formal complaint? Should I just keep quiet because I know I'm very lucky and kind of privileged to have such a fulfilling sexual life, and I guess losing friends is just one of the prices I have to pay? Um, and perhaps this is relevant to mention that the guy, this guy is actually not the only close friend I've lost to this. Um, so any thoughts you might have or advice would be greatly appreciated. In some ways, I think Polly now is where gay was in about 1982, where coming out as gay then uh, to friends meant losing friends. And it didn't just mean losing friends, can still mean losing friends. But the assumption was I'm coming out as gay. I'm going to lose a bunch of friends, a bunch of people who thought they liked me and that I liked, but they didn't really know who I was are going to find out who I really am and then reassess how they feel about me and I'm going to lose these friends and it's going to be worth it because I'd rather be who I am and not have these friends than be in the closet for the rest of my life to keep these friends. So you as Polly and other people who are Polly who are coming out now as Polly, that is so threatening polyamory to some people who are straight that it's going to cost you some friends just like the gay thing was so threatening to some people who were straight 30 years ago that it cost gay people who came out then friends. Certainly it was even worse than 72 and worsens 52, but it gets better by dint of people coming out and people getting to know people who were gay then or poly now and overcoming their anxieties, fears, hangups, misconceptions, preconceptions about who gay or and or poly people are. So you are paying the dues that must be paid in a way. You can think of it that way, that you are right now doing the heavy lifting for poly people 20, 30 years in the future and for yourselves 10, 15, 20 years in the future. You are helping to make it better, not just for the poly couples and people coming after you, but also ultimately for yourself. Now to the problem with this particular friend that you've lost. I don't think you should confront him. I don't think you should file some sort of complaint. I don't think you have grounds to file some sort of complaint. He isn't your friend anymore. But otherwise, it sounds like he's treating you professionally. He's not excluding you from emails. He's keeping you in the loop about work and school matters. He's keeping it professional. He doesn't want to be your friend anymore, and that's shitty. And his reasons for not wanting to be your friend are fucked up. But he's not obligated to be your friend. So instead of thinking about retaliating against him by confronting him, calling him out in some public setting, filing some sort of charges against him with the university because he's what? By the university's code of conduct obligated to be your buddy? No, he's not. I think you reach out to him in sadness, not anger. You reach out to him and say, I miss our friendship. I'm sorry that this news about this truth about me that when shared with you so upset you that it, destroyed your ability to, to be my friend. And I, and I miss our friendship. And then you let it go, but you don't reach out and you must be my friend, retaliatory thunderbolt 
hurling anger because he's not obligated to be your friend. You can be sad. You can be hurt. You should communicate that to him. And you should perhaps in that communique, you should express your gratitude for his continuing to treat you professionally. And you should say that you will continue to treat him professionally as well. Adding at the end that you wish you could be more than just colleagues and that you miss your friendship. And who knows? Maybe he'll come around. Maybe he'll get over it. Maybe he'll meet other academia. Maybe he'll meet other poly people and come to see that his judgment of you, his uh, cutting you out of his life, his unfriending you was shitty and unnecessary and came from a place of fear and faulty assumptions. And he'll come around, which will be a multi-year journey perhaps for him. But it's unlikely that he will ever come around if you go at him hammer and tongs. I think you would have a total justification to go after him hammer and tongs, confront him, call him out, do whatever you can do if he was punishing you for your private life. If he was harming you academically or professionally. But you don't mention him doing that. You mention him doing the opposite. And unless there's some evidence that he's doing that, the best approach in sadness, not in anger, reach out to him and tell him you miss him. This podcast is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of audiobooks with more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. Audiobooks are great to listen to when you're driving, stuck in traffic, or doing chores around the house. For listeners of this podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One audiobook to consider is Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life by Emily Nagoski. Our guest earlier in the show, Aaron, the lesbian, is reading this book. I am currently reading this book, and you can have this book read to you by the author, Emily Nagoski, for free as a way to try out Audible. For that free audiobook of your choice... Come as you are or some other book, go to audiblepodcast.com slash savage. That's audiblepodcast.com slash savage. Hi, I'm a 28-year-old straight female from the East Coast, and my husband and I have a question uh, related to parenting. Uh, We are new parents. We have a seven-month, almost seven-month-old son, and today I think we may have really screwed up. My husband works late nights, and... We don't have a lot of time for sex. Obviously, we have a seven-month-old, and by the time he gets home at night, I'm exhausted, and often sex doesn't really happen. Well, we've often been getting kind of horny in the morning, and today when I went to go take a shower, we were kind of feeling frisky, and the baby was up, but we put him in his crib, and let him play with his toys and we had a cookie in the shower in which is connected to his bedroom. Are we terrible people, terrible parents, or is this just how things work with the new, new baby in the family? We want to have a sex positive household and we obviously want to have some kind of sex life. I love my husband and I miss having sex with him. Is there anything else we can do? Any advice? It wasn't that long ago that people fucked in front of their kids all the time, that there were family beds, colonial America, there would be one great big family bed, the pilgrims, one big family bed, and mom and dad, to make more farmhands, might fuck in front of the farmhands that they had already made. 
Uh, I don't think that people should fucking run up their seven-month-olds or two-year-olds or 10-year-olds or 17-year-olds. But you guys did nothing wrong. Uh, if I were having sex in the shower while my six or seven month old or year old kid was in a crib in the next room, I would perhaps leave the door open, not have music blasting, uh, not have the shower blasting so loud that if the kid was in distress, we would be able to hear it and uh, pull the dicks out and run to the aid of this distressed infant. But you did nothing wrong and you did something right. You carved out a little time in the day for a quickie and that's – you know, some people will say, oh, a terrible thing to set your child aside to go have this unimportant, stupid, meaningless sex. But it's in the best interest of your child for you and your husband to carefully and when you can maintain and sustain and grow your sexual connection you want to be having orgasms together. You want to be associating one another with pleasure and all that oxy shit flooding into your systems and not just associating each other now with tense negotiations and the grind of parenting. So it was good that you guys did that for each other and it was good that you guys did that for your kid. And you should continue to do that for each other and for your kid. Kid wasn't crying. Kid wasn't hungry. Kid wasn't in distress. Kid in a crib for, what, 10 minutes while mommy and daddy or mommy and mommy or daddy and daddy get it off in the shower or elsewhere? Not a problem. Not anything you should feel guilty about. Not anything you're doing wrong. Indeed, something you are doing very, very right. Hey, everybody. It's Nancy. Building a website is no small task. If you don't have the skills to put it together yourself, it'll take a long time, and you've seen how crappy websites can look. But with Squarespace, they make it so easy to put together a truly lovely and well-functioning website quickly. Everything is drag and drop, so it's easy, and they have tons of templates to choose from, so you can make your site your own. Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology powering your site to ensure security and stability. Important! And you can probably afford it. It starts at $8 a month, and you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code SAVAGE to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Hi, Dan. I'm a 43-year-old gay male, and I can't find peace with my 65-year-old deeply religious mother because of our conflicting views on religion and sexual orientation. We're both incredibly stubborn and have verbally hurt each other for almost 20 years over this issue. She was raised as a Christian, but some preacher converted her to Islam after her divorce when she was weakest and desperately needed something to cling on to. I blame myself for having failed her during that time because the brainwash she consequently received proved to be absolutely impenetrable. I stopped visiting her three years ago after she referred to my sexual orientation as not normal. She almost died of pneumonia earlier this year. She's alone and in a very sad place, relying only on religion to save her. During a very optimistic mood, I made an effort and broke the long period of silence. I invited her over to my house and she was as happy as can be for one day. Until I made the mistake to bring up the religion versus sexual orientation topic again. Our dispute quickly escalated because I had hoped that she might have come around and appreciate me more than her religion. I wasn't able to hide my disappointment well enough. Is there any way I can help her without feeling betrayed 
do I have to get over myself and just accept her bigoted view that I'm not normal, that nobody's born this way and that I've made a choice? My inner conflict is tearing me apart because I want nothing more than to help her. But I feel that the price for doing that is just too high. I feel really sorry for what she had to endure in life, but at the same time, I refuse to accept that religion is more important to her than her own son. Our bond is very strong, but I just can't get over the fact that her brainwash seems to trump our love. Thanks for your help. It's wonderful the way religion brings people together, isn't it? It's magic. Your call really breaks my heart, and it goes to show that these sorts of religious, bigoted judgments uh, and errors about human sexuality don't just hurt young and vulnerable 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 year old queer kids who are entirely dependent on their parents and vulnerable uh, in the face, very vulnerable um, physically in the face of their parents' bigotry, but also can hurt adult queer children who are not vulnerable in the same way, but can be emotionally traumatized by these errors by these bigoted, religious, magical, tragical beliefs. What do you owe your mother at 65? Well, and 43, you don't owe her anything, really. Uh, you can love and support her. You can tell her you'll be there for her. And then you can refuse to discuss this topic ever again. I would have a very difficult time being with a parent or a relative who I knew thought these things about me. But if I allowed my love for them as parent to trump my anger or disappointment in their bigoted views of who I am, I would go anyway. I would allow, you know, you're asking why does your mother allow her religious beliefs to trump her affections for you as a son? And I would say that as a son, if my mother felt the way your mother feels, I would hopefully allow my affection for her as a parent to trump my anger at her religious beliefs. And I would go to her and I would be there as much as I could for her. So long as it's not toxic, so long as she's not lashing out, so long as we can say, we will never agree about who I am. And so we are not going to talk about it. I'm not going to listen to you. And then I would get up and go. If she went there maliciously, intentionally, if she brought every conversation around to my sinful, sick choice to be gay, I wouldn't subject myself to that. I wouldn't feel obligated to do that as her child. I wouldn't owe her that. Your mother sounds a bit bananas. It sounds like you recognize that she ran from one shitty faith to another shitty faith uh, because she was weak and she needed something and it was this and she has clung to it. And it has hurt her and hurt her relationships and in a way, this religion for her is like the bottle for the alcoholic. It ain't good for her. She can't give it up. So what do you do? Well, you don't hang out with your drunk parents when they're drunk. You don't have to sit there and take it. You don't have to enable it. You don't have to bring the Jack Daniels to them and you don't have to drink the Jack Daniels with them. And say to your parents, you know, when you're sober, I'll hang out. When you're sober, I'll see you. And I think you can say to your drunk on religion parents, you know, when you're sober, when you're not pounding the table, when you're not bashing the Bible, when you're not waving the Quran around in my face, I will hang out with you. I will see you. We can talk about 
other things. But if you're going to hit the bottle, if you're going to hit the Bible, if you're going to hit the Quran, I'm out the door. And I'm not going to have a sip myself because I'm not drinking that shit because I don't think it's very good for you or me or anyone. I'm sorry your mother is who she is. I'm sorry she makes you feel bad about who you are. I'm sorry the choice that she made. Religion, oh my God. Religion is a choice. It's so hilariously, transparently just an issue of projection on the part of religious people when they say sexuality or gender identity is a choice because religion is a choice. And they argue that sexuality, gender identity shouldn't be protected. They shouldn't even be tolerated because it's a choice. Well, religious people, by dint of proselytizing, admit that religion is a choice. Your mother chose Islam over the faith that she was raised in. If anyone is making a sick, not sick, if anyone is making a destructive choice here, it's your mom. If you haven't said that shit to her already, you can say it to her again in one last blowout where you declared the subject forever and eternally off limits. You are not going to talk about your sexuality with her again. And you're not going to talk about religion with her anymore. You're not going to hit the bottle with her. And if she insists on being drunk in your presence on faith and judgment and bigotry, you're out the door. I know I, I have a good friend who recently had to cut his mother out of his life because after 20 years of a detente around his sexuality, she finally said the wrong thing for the millionth time and he cut her out of his life because he is not willing to take her faith-based, faith-rationalized abuse anymore. You may reach that point too. I'm not telling you to cut your mother out of your life yet. I'm telling you to cut this stuff off, to cut off these topics, to say we will not go here. We will not talk about Islam. We will not talk about Christianity. We will not talk about sexuality. We will not talk about choice. If you want to talk about those things, I'm out. If every time I see you, that comes up, I will not see you anymore. Leverage. Your leverage as an adult child over your parents, your parent, is your presence in her life. Use it to leverage from her human decency, consideration, compassion. Don't have to change your mind about her bananas theology where your sexuality is concerned. But you can use your presence to make the time you do spend with her less traumatizing for you. And if she can't do that, if she can't be with you without going there, don't be with her. Send her letters, send her cards, send her your regards, but don't spend your time with her. Hey, Dan. This is just another suggestion for the guy on episode, I think, 457, whose girlfriend was very insecure about how her vagina looked and wouldn't let him look at it. She might try reading some erotica, focused specifically on sort of female pleasure and sort of a guy really loving the look, smell, and taste of her pussy. Kind of without the visual getting in the way, it kind of potentially could help her kind of reconceptualize how she feels about it without, uh, you know, just sort of being <laughs> overwhelmed by the imagery of, of, say, looking at porn or, or uh, trying to get comfortable with it from a visual sense. She could just get comfortable with it from a sexy imagined sense. Hey, Dan, I'm calling about the man whose girlfriend hated the way her vagina looked. 
which was super sad. And I think a lot of women go through. And I actually had some counterintuitive advice for him. Um, you kind of obliquely suggested this, but I think she should just go with kind of a male arrogance and like thinking about his own needs and really go for the, this is for my pleasure angle. And the reason I think that's going to work is like, if he goes for, you're so beautiful, this is for your pleasure. She's going to be suspicious that he's just doing it for her. Whereas if he goes for, this is such a turn on for me, babe, like your vagina is so beautiful. And like, this is what I really want to do. I just, it turns me on so much to go down on you. Then I just have a feeling she's going to give in way more if he makes it seem selfishly about him. And then once he does go down on her, it's going to open up that door and it's going to feel so good for her that it is going to start to be about her. And she's just going to totally get over it. Hi, Dan. I just wanted to leave a message for the guy whose girlfriend is insecure about her vagina. I've been there in some way. Uh, my nipples are kind of large. And when I was a freshman in college, I slept with an old friend. And that little asshole told all his little friends about my nipples. And later they asked me if it was true that I had pizza tits or pancake tits. I don't even remember. But it messed with my head. And then soon after I dated a guy couldn't get it up. So I just want him to know that whatever his girlfriend is shutting down about, it's no doubt something in her history. And it took for me uh, dating a guy long-term who was very positive and kept telling me how pretty and sexy I was to bring me out of my shell. And now he's my husband and he gets to play with my titties anytime he wants. And we're going to leave it there. We have a brand new phone number here at the Savage Lovecast. The old one still works, but we want you to use this one from now on. If you have a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz at 206-302-2064. That number again, 206-302-2064. Pump My Amateur Porn Film Festival is coming to Brooklyn, New York in August on the 28th and 29th. Then in September, Hump goes to Madison, Wisconsin, Bend, Oregon, Vancouver, BC, Austin, Texas, and Minneapolis, Minnesota. Go to humptour.com for info about dates and to buy tickets and to learn how you can make and submit a film for Hump 2015, the festival coming up here in Seattle and Portland. Go to humptour.com, click on submit. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Taking a quick look at Twitter, Yaakov Mikhail tweets, obsessed with at Fake Dan Savage podcast. Took long enough, but I'm here, I'm queer, and I cannot stop listening to the Savage Lovecast. Welcome to the Savage Lovecast, Yaakov. We're happy to have you. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast, which has a brand new phone number, 206-302-2064. Give us a call. Talk to you next week.